back to Wild Game Dynasty, folks. This is part two of two with Dr. Lynn Rogers, episode number 114 of our Wild Game Dynasty podcast platform. Hey, if you didn't have a chance to listen to episode number 113, the first part of this two-part series, you may want to catch that first. Man, my eyes were opened up big time, especially being a, uh, a guide mainly in Michigan, doing a lot of black bear guiding, running into bears out in the wild, and seeing the behavior that Dr. Rogers explained that they do. I, I, my head was nodding. Yep, I've seen that many a time. But misreading the black bear, understanding that it wasn't what I was thinking, they're, why they're behaving a certain way, which was really intriguing. But, hey, don't take my word for it, as we, as we know. Let's roll right into podcast number 114 with Dr. Lynn Rogers. I know that people say never feed a bear, a fed bear is a dead bear, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the real thing is, uh, I'm studying a community right now okay. that back in 1961 discovered something that was not known to science. Because everybody, uh, people weren't out in the woods so much uh, looking at what berry crops were doing and uh, nuts and acorns and all like that. What do they have available? So they, And the belief was about a bear as an omnivore can always find something to eat. So if it's coming around humans looking for food, that means it's a lazy bear looking for an easy handout. And that uh, if they lose fear of people, then they would finally dare to attack. And so you got to kill them. Uh, but this community realized that it's hunger, berry crop failures, oh, acorn yeah. failures, mm-hmm. all that, whatever. When food was really scarce in the woods, uh, hungry bears would come looking for it around people's houses. Bird feeders, Bird feeders mm-hmm. garbage, and uh, and if you remove those so the bears go away, if there's nothing in the woods, that means there's no buffer against house break-ins. Yes. It's all about food. Yes, and so what they started was diversionary feeding. They did everything contrary to what people would be told by an agency. Mm. And so... Um, and what happened, uh, the people fell in love with the bears. As the bears calmed down, they recognized individuals. They'd see them come with their new cubs. They'd watch the cubs grow up. And the bears kind of endeared themselves to the people. And uh, the, the people, uh, well, the, the community got known for its peaceful coexistence with bears not for its problems that would increase because they fed them and drew them in. It was that the bears didn't go house to house. Yeah. In other areas, when there's, a, when there's a food failure in the woods, bears go house to house looking for tidbits yeah. of garbage and bird seed and stuff, going house to house, scaring people mm-hmm. with, with just with their presence, being shot. And so these, uh, this idea of a fed bear as a dead bear was, was the opposite in this community because the, as the guy that started diversionary feeding and people saw what the bears were really like, they copied him 
pretty soon there was a dozen households providing good diversionary food, um, uh, like uh, nuts and uh, uh, seeds um, and uh, sunflower seeds. That's and awesome. Dried fruit, wild kinds of food. Mm-hmm. And what people always say is that uh, the bears come into town and then they get used to human foods. Mm-hmm. And then they, they seek those. But what I found out is human foods are down the list. Yes. They like wild a diver, diversity of wild berries, uh, tender vegetation that's easy, easy, easily digestible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so when there's good food in the woods, bears hardly came to these diversionary feeding sites. But when there was a thing and bears were getting shot, otherwise, people were welcoming the bears that they recognized. And, hey, your cubs are growing up nice. That's all good to see. And the bears were calm. And pretty soon the people could even interact closely, hand feeding and whatever. And uh, and so you'd think that would be the place for the most nuisance complaints in the world. Yeah. It was the lowest. below the statewide average because when people saw a bear, they were happy. They didn't call the DNR and say, you got to come remove this bear. And that was at a time when bear management in Michigan was towards elimination and people wouldn't allow passage of big game legislation Mm -hmm. because they just wanted the right to be able to shoot a bear on site Anytime to protect their their family, their their kids, and their property, and uh, and just be able to have no bears around so they can hike and live without fear. Doctor Rogers, so um, Doctor Rogers, everything turned huh? There, uh, well, I was starting to interrupt, Doctor Rogers. There's a um, um, there was a point in time prior to my participation in Michigan's deer hunting uh, season, particularly with a, yeah. with a long gun. But um, I remember my dad saying that a person could actually harvest a black bear during Michigan's deer season. And, um, and that, I yeah, just wonder, was that... Laws differ in different places. Um... Was that what I did? Was that kind of go ahead? Well, was that kind of contingent on a bear management practice that uh, changed to what it is today, more so to have its own bear season, big game season, versus commingling the two together? Yeah, actually, I yes. Uh, What happened when I got here in Minnesota and began my bear study? I went to the DNR and asked the wildlife head people, uh, what is your biggest bear problem and how can I help? And their biggest problem was people's fear that they were unable to manage them as big game animals, sell licenses, and, and but manage them sustainably, mm-hmm. actually manage them to recover mm-hmm. from the decimated state that they were. 
And so um, they asked me to, to join them as a team, a team member to help uh, change attitudes. And I thought, how can I do that? But I found that if you're studying bears, you get media coverage. Yeah. That gave me a voice. Mm. And I could start uh, changing attitudes. And as I was on radio and television and stuff doing that, uh, all of a sudden I had um, lecture invitations coming from all over. <laughs> so be between my classwork and my field work, I squeezed, I, I kind of felt that uh, if you're studying an animal whose welfare depends on people's attitudes, you have a responsibility to that animal of uh, sharing your, your findings with the public and have people understand them better and maybe react to them differently depending on what, what it is. Yeah, I agree. And that's, so that's awesome. I en it ended up that uh, uh, I met people on my lecture tours, uh, legislators, hunting leaders, and they joined and they had a similar mindset as mine. And so we passed the legislation, and then the DNR said, can you use your field data to write the new hunting regulations? I did. And uh, and uh, I don't know if I should get, get into that, maybe, but, but it was okay. I'll tell you a little bit. Um, <laughs> we appreciate that. I, what's that? We appreciate you sharing this with th this. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. yes. Um, I reduced bear hunting from 52 weeks to six. I had the season start no earlier than mid-September because bears here again early in September and October mm -hmm. for the most part. And pregnant females are the uh, first ones to go into dens. And so if I thought if we... And I learned as I went that some of them even went in during the last week of August. Wow. So um, if we could keep, you know, start hunting late enough that a lot of the pregnant females got in dens, you're preserving the population for the future. And so um, then, uh, and then I, I protected bears in dens cubs and bears within a half a mile of a garbage dump. I thought for the safety of people dumping garbage and garbage dumps are where people go to watch bears mm -hmm. and get over their fear and and are not so quick to gut shoot bears that they see so they run off and die some slow death that can take up to four months. And so... Uh, yeah, so I was, I was, and then one of the biggest problems of bear hunting is wounding loss. Yes. And, and, and so this is an animal that if you try to make it sporting, uh, you're just upping the wounding loss. Uh, like maybe you make it sporting by using a 22 mm. or a muzzle loader. And when you should be using a high high caliber gun, that uh, that's going to kill it on the spot. Yeah. And so, and then when you, when you wound a bear, uh, 
uh, that means that bear goes off to die or suffer at least, and then you shoot another one. And if you wound that one, the, the problem goes on. So I wanted people to be able, when they shoot a bear, they're shooting that one bear, and that's it. And and uh, and it's a killing shot. Yes. So I introduced something that some people think is not fair, and it's not really fair, baiting. Mm -hmm. It's not a uh, fair chase, but it is a quick kill. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, you kill fewer bears with baiting because you can control the kill by the number of licenses you issue right. and the length of the season. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I wanted to put bears on a road to recovery, so I wanted to kill the, the fewest. So I, I put uh, regulations on the caliber of gun that you have to use. Uh, nothing that's weak, and um, that, uh, well, that, and then one of the guys, a hunting leader, part of the team, he then formed the DNR's hunter education program for bear hunting, and he taught people how to avoid shooting females, especially lactating females. Absolutely. And so, um, just so because the cubs, uh, well, when it comes to bears, by the time of bear season, cubs can probably survive on their own. Uh, although they would normally have a better winter snuggled together in a den altogether, because if the mother gets killed, then the cubs tend to den separately, and they they're small. So they have a higher surface-to-mash ratio, lose heat more readily, and uh, so you really want that mother to survive to help them. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, uh, so anyway, I I tried to make it more humane and uh, quick kills. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. <coughs> This is really so, this is very interesting. But you got me babbling on. Don't get me started. I don't know when to quit. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> well, so but but uh, okay. I'll tell you another thing then. If you if okay, uh, that is uh, as I learned about bears. I mean, it started out. Mm -hmm. uh, I used traps and tranquilizers. Uh, put radio collars on them follow him in the airplane, put dots on a map, and I thought I knew a lot about bears. But there's only so much you can learn from a tranquilized bear and, uh, and from a dot on a map. Yeah. And I did, I, it, the dots did show patterns that made uh, one of my best and biggest breakthroughs. Uh, I, was, I was the first one to describe the social organization of a solitary mammal like a bear. Mm. Uh, all the previous studies had been of group living animals like uh, gorillas and lions and elephants. And, and so, and I discovered it's a whole different kind of social organization, uh, what they call, what we call a matrilineal territorial organization. 
uh, the social organization of, is built around, around female territories that they share with their daughters. Their their sons disperse and look for a big mating range that they can settle in, uh, some area where there's females and food and not, not too many big males to be chasing them all the time. So then they they establish a mating range, uh, and that includes about seven to fifteen female territories, and so that's where they go. But the daughters grow up in their mother's territories. Not always. Think of the bell-shaped curve, mm-hmm. but very often in the mother's territory, and as they establish a little territory that grows each year, uh, started when they were a yearling right after family breakup, then um, they get big enough, uh, depending on the food supply, three to seven years old, big enough to raise cubs of their own. Mm. And by that time, uh, maybe the mother's got other daughters in there too. So she's trying to compete with her territorial neighbors uh, to expand her territory and shift it even, leaving behind a trail of her daughter's territories. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, uh, but but I really wanted to learn more about their ecology, their language, their relationships with each other. And the only way you're going to do that is like Jane Goodall studied uh, chimpanzees. Mm-hmm you got to use a trust-based method that allows them to get to know you well enough. Uh, you're not their friend, but you're not their foe. You're not a competitor, but you're not a significant food giver. So you're just inconsequential, and that's so I copied uh, Jane Goodall, <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and it worked the same with the bears. And uh, I could walk with them, mothers of cubs, sleep with them, right next to them through the night. Really? Uh, typing into my computer, uh, maybe with uh, maybe down in my sleeping bag, I can hear them outside. The nursing sound they make, kind of <laughs> that uh, that mm-hmm. pulsing sound, mm-hmm. and uh, and typing in. Okay, they started nursing at this time, and okay, now they're done. You type that they're done, and maybe you look to see what position they're in, if there's enough starlight or moonlight. And uh, all of a sudden, you're learning the details that I could never get studying them from a distance. And the funny thing is, you think, well, aren't you disturbing them? No, they nurse their cubs, they take their naps, and... uh, as long as I was close enough to be readily identifiable, uh, that I was ignored. Uh, but if I if I think, well, maybe I'm disturbing them, I'll watch from a distance. That's when you disturb them. They don't know what you are. Wow. So it just all of a sudden it was working out. I was learning more than I ever thought I could, and so it's just they're so different. That I originally thought. I'll I'll get questions from 
bear hunters about their behavior, not the bear's behavior, but, well, that too, but, I mean, the hunter's behavior. And we usually do a, a strong review of how people, how hunters should be um, behaving in their, in their stands, and uh, whether it be a ground blind or a tree stand. And I'll, I'll describe the bear's eyesight as not the greatest. They're not blind, but they... Their the, I, their oh, it's not that bad, really. Right. Oh, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll kind of indicate that. I said, hey, you're not going to beat their nose, and you're not going to really beat their ears. They hear very well. And, and right. I, and I Number remember, one for sensing danger, right. Oh, boy. And I remember one guy said, you really think they're, they, they smell that good? And I just looked at him, and I said, I don't have the data as it's compared to your house dog or me. You know, or you with your smell, but I said, um, I said it, it, their hearing is also quite, quite distinct. I said it'd be like you, uh, you know, having somebody uh, leave the faucet in the other end of the house, not turned off completely, and and you have a bunch of people over. You can hear that drip. Nobody else is paying attention to it, but you do. Yeah. And, and I said that's kind of the bear in the woods. He hears. Yeah. He hears, I mean, you flick that safety off at 60 or 80 yards, and it's a new noise. He or she's going to hear it. That's how it was when I was walking with the bears. A chipmunk could be rustling leaves ahead of us, and the bear pays no attention to me. It's all on what is that danger. Wow. And if the wind is blowing, all the trees are rustling, it sounds like danger is coming from all directions. And that's when yearlings spend a lot of time during the day up in a up in a tree for refuge. Wow! You know, new, newly on their own. Mm -hmm. Would that be so? Yeah, on their ears, they can hear a bigger range of sounds. I mean, they can hear a dog whistle, and uh, yeah. and with those big ears, that they can move so that they catch the sound the most efficiently. Yes. Uh, uh, really uh, very sensitive, very sensitive, yeah, that's just like you're saying. Yeah, that's interesting. And then their nose is uh, better than a bloodhound. Wow. And, uh, and their eyes, uh, they got very good close-up vision because they use that for looking for berries down in the, in the leaves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but, uh, they also can sense and see motion at a great distance. Yes, I would agree with and, that. And, uh, it's up to them how far away it's going to make a distance difference to them. But, yeah. uh, I've been, I've been surprised that bears notice me and, uh, wow, this is so, awesome. well, Dr. Rogers, yeah. this, this is Dr. Rogers, it's been a, uh, such an experience hearing you go through your early years and how how you became uh, a bear researcher what 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 routes in life we'll say got you to where you're at um you know you always had the desire and uh and really if you have that and the passion it's like that part of your story when you showed up at the Fusano research center 
and then got down the road and realized you hadn't uh, filled out an application. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of yeah. people, a lot of people just say, "Oh well, it wasn't meant to be," but you know, you you pursued it, and we're thankful that you did because you provided a whole different dimension of knowledge, yeah. of knowledge for us, for all of us out here. Um, oh, and one of the big things, as I as I could walk with them, I could see what their needs were. And, uh, in fact, um, the information I got about bear habitat use and how to manage forests for bears has been the basis for bear habitat management in the Upper Great Lakes region. Because mm. that's where I got the information. Yeah, awesome. Wow. And it's just, it opened the door to every aspect that I was curious about. Wow. I remember a story, I guess maybe we could keep, I remember a story. You there? Yeah, right. All right. I just was losing, I got a little technical difficulty here, I think, but uh, uh, there we go. Um, I remember a story that, you told to me uh, another time we chatted on the phone, and you had some students from uh, some local colleges at the Tuzanah Research Center, and I don't remember what school they came from, if it was Lake State or Michigan Tech or maybe Northern, but um, they were studying, they, they, they had like, you had different teams of students, and they had collared bears that they were studying their behaviors, et cetera, their, their travels. And uh, one team after one after another came to you and said, hey, we lost a bear. And uh, it came down to the last team reported back to you about their their bear, the only team that really maintained contact with their, their bear because the other ones vacated the area. And you indicated that they had, um, there, there was a, wind change, a strong change in the direction of the wind, and it brought in the scent of a mass crop of acorns several miles away. Oh, yep. And that bear kind of stood up, smelled it, and away he went, and he was gone. And they hey, there was, yeah, I had, I had uh, some assistants who were walking with a family of bears, and it was a good hazelnut crop that year. And there was hazelnuts everywhere. and But all of a sudden, that bear, uh, the wind changed, like you said, and put an ozonet into the wind and started going fast in that direction, faster than they could keep up with. So they, they came back and told me, and I says, wow, this is interesting. I got up in an airplane. She was 18 miles away, 18 miles. Uh, that's almost halfway down to the north shore of Lake Superior. Wow. And uh, actually what she keyed in on was the best hazelnut crop I ever saw 41 miles away. Oh, my gosh. And I don't know if a person would believe that, but even I can smell uh, a forest fire 200 miles away, <laughs> yeah. you know, if the wind is right, you bet. and they got a way better nose. Anyway, it spent the next month in that, in that area. Wow. And then I thought, wow, uh, 
two things I wondered. Why did she leave this area where there's hazelnuts everywhere? So I started looking at the hazelnuts. They all had holes in them. Hazel, hazel worms were getting into them and eating the insides out. And they didn't have any holes in the hazelnuts down by the North Shore. And uh, and then, so I also wondered, I wonder if other bears are doing the same thing. There was another bear that had a radio collar on. I found that bear in the same hazelnut patch. Wow. 41 miles away. Hmm. So it's just it's kind of amazing. It Resilient. started me having an interest in navigation ability. And, yeah. And like, one bear went 126 miles away. Now, when they do that, when they travel, maybe just for that, because of the hazelnut situation, will they return to their home range that they they left from? Or yeah. Okay. That's what I. That's what I want. That's, yeah. All these long travels. Well, I found that uh, where they went uh, was dictated by what the glaciers did. Many millennia ago, um, different lobes of the glaciers that covered the upper Great Lakes Mm -hmm. uh, deposited different kinds of soil, and that dictates what kind of foods are growing on those soils today. Mm -hmm. And where I'm studying them, it is quite infertile. Mm. Uh, It's sandy and shallow. It's on what they call the Laurentian Shield. And uh, where the bedrock is just a few feet under the ground and you get a drought, it easily dries out from the sandy soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Nothing like if it was in clay or loam, which can hold moisture much better. And then just west of here is some of the richest soil in Minnesota, clay, loam, deep soil. And so... Um, what they generally are traveling to places either that their mother showed them, showing their memory and their ability to navigate when they grow up yet to that to that place, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, or some of it like down by Lake Superior, you got the lake effect from Lake Superior, uh, making it so there's fewer spring killing frosts mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden the you know the landscape ecology was coming clear uh, once a, a biophysicist taught me about the glaciers okay wow that is so interesting and the one that went 126 miles uh, didn't really know where it was going it was it was heading south and then then it kind of veered off more to the west, took a looping uh, trek uh, to where it got to an uh, oak stand that had a lot of acorns, spent the the next month in that. Oh, and then it took a a 15-mile trip north where there was another good one that it must have smelled and uh, came back to the first one. Then it was time to time to go into a den. Wow! And the bear, I thought, now when he if he's going back home, 
is he going to cut across, you know, go back to that loop that he came down, remember the trail, or did it cr- create a map in its, in its brain and knew what direction to go to be home? And it seemed like it was the latter. And uh, and it and it took it just stayed on on track on direction so well that I thought this is a good story. So I called the Duluth News Tribune and I said I'm following a bear that's heading uh, 126 miles back home and it's going to cross the highway at a certain time at a certain mile marker. <laughs> And it did. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Oh, and then, um, and it didn't care about how hard it was to go where it was going. You know, uh, with a lot of blowdowns and stuff to have yeah. to go through, until it got back into the area where I had tracked it before. Then it would get walk on uh, uh, gravel roads. More familiar. Or or good game trails that twisted and turned and no longer was hanging right to a direction because it knew where these went. You bet. Absolutely. Became, and then it, became all of a sudden it got, uh, what's that? Became upon familiar territory. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it left uh, the gravel road that it was walking on, went up over a hill into a den, that uh, knew about, obviously, but had never used because there was another 450-pound bear like this one that um, that had used it six years earlier. And so I had checked that den every winter to see if a bear was using it, and this was the first one. It was the right-sized den for it. A rock crevice. Wow, that's awesome. Anyway, I'm carrying on and on and on. Don't get me started. Yeah, well, (laughs) we should probably wrap it up. I'm looking at our timeline, and we're a little over. That's okay. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. No, the content is so so intriguing and so uh, enlightening that uh, I appreciate it. So will the listeners. I'll probably... uh, do what I need to do, and I'll probably make this a part one and a part two, which allows really um, a better way to listen to it because, you know, it just it, it, it's like you know, reading a book. Sometimes it's hard to put the book down, but uh, it's very difficult to find the time to read it from front to back, too. So, um, Right, yeah. Uh, Dr. Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for uh, taking time out again. Oh, my pleasure. I'm talking about what I love. Yes. Thank you. And it shows. It shows. And again, we appreciate that the fact that you pursued this from the beginning and uh, didn't give up despite maybe a couple obstacles here and there because you're doing what you do um, love to do. And by doing that, your work has been exemplary. And actually, yes, the bears are the recipient recipient of that work but so are all of us really so we become yeah there's a lot of stuff that we didn't talk about like what does make a bear dangerous and uh what does create um you know attacks and 
and uh, some other time maybe we can. Absolutely. I was just hoping you'd finish with that. So, hey, thanks again, Dr. Rogers, and uh, um, we we look forward to our next uh, our next visit to uh, get into that information as well. You betcha. All right. Thank you. You, you take care. And Godspeed to all you do. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Same to you. This week's podcast brought to you by Bearfeed Retichuck Farms. Let us help you take the worry out of picking the perfect bait. The only thing you have to worry about is tagging that bear. Stop in, see all the family, and check out our great selection of bear bait. FeedMIBear.com And also brought to you by... Hey out there, this is Barry Wenzel. I've been successfully hunting white-tailed deer for over 60 years now. Deer base their entire existence on messages received from their noses you can increase communications within the local social structure by using Smokey's Deer Lures. They just flat out work great for me. Give Smokey's a try, and I think you'll agree. Best of luck and shoot straight. And with that, we conclude another podcast episode with Wild Game Dynasty. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to receive notifications on future podcasts. Also, please head on over and check out our Facebook page, be sure to like and follow it to stay up to date on highlights from our clients, turkey, bear, and white-tailed deer hunts. Until next time, guys, stay safe, enjoy the great outdoors, and happy hunting. Yeah.